This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Former Governor John Hickenlooper heads back to Iowa, this time as a declared candidate for president. On Thursday, he held what he called a hometown send-off event in Denver Civic Center Park, a fitting location because it's between his two old offices when he was mayor and then governor. Here are some of the policies he laid out. Now, let me tell you, when I'm president, we will declare that as a country that health care is a right. This means universal affordable coverage where everyone has a doctor who knows them, knows their family, where everyone can get a checkup, a real medical home. And we will reclaim our global leadership. And the first thing we're going to do is rejoin the Paris Climate Accord and exceed its goals. Well, now that the cheering has stopped, Hickenlooper has his work cut out for him to win the 2020 Democratic nomination. The Iowa caucuses are now less than a year away, and he has to differentiate himself from more than a dozen other candidates. We're going to discuss his prospects with a roundtable today. Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver and has written for a number of publications, including the website 538. Hi, Seth. Hi, thanks for having me. Also here, Max Potter, currently editor-at-large with Esquire magazine. Potter was previously a senior advisor and speechwriter for Governor Hickenlooper and co-author of Hickenlooper's memoir, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. Hi, Max. Good morning, Ryan. And on the phone from Iowa, where at the moment he's shadowing another Democratic candidate, Bernie Sanders, is Kevin Hardy, political reporter for the Des Moines Register. He has followed Hickenlooper during his stops in Iowa. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for being with us. So Higginlooper is the 14th Democrat to announce he's running. Others, including Colorado Senate, Senator Michael Bennett, uh, who's in New Hampshire today, and former Vice President Joe Biden are still thinking about entering the race. Seth, how big could this field get? And what does it mean that there isn't at this point a clear front runner? I mean, it, it depends how we consider who's running. But if you just look at uh, people who, you know, office holders and others who've expressed interest in the presidency, who've shown up in New Hampshire and Iowa and done the things that presidential candidates do. I mean, I count more than 30 people who are still in this game. 30? It's a, okay. It's a pretty large field at this point. And does it say anything about the state of the Democratic Party or the state of uh, the electorate that there's no clear frontrunner at this point? Or is this natural? I mean, it's uh, it's a somewhat unusual nomination race in that it's much more open than we've seen in, in a lot of recent races. There's no obvious heir apparent or, or frontrunner. There's no one named Clinton or Obama running for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, it's, it, I've been sort of comparing it to, say, the 1988 presidential race, where you had a pretty large field of Democrats with uh, pretty high quality candidates, a lot of senators and governors and others. Um, and it wasn't really obvious for a while who really the front runner would be. Is that good or bad or neutral <laughs> for the Democrats, I guess? Um, if you're a Democrat right now, it's it means you have, uh, in many ways, an embarrassment of riches. You have a lot of people to choose from. And if someone seems flawed, you have a lot of choices to go to after that. Um, you know, the real test is how well they can kind of narrow the field down and uh, rally around uh, the party's ultimate choice and whether it looks like a very divisive convention or a divisive fall. But mm. we're, we're very far away from that right now. So in contrast, Kevin, in 2016, the Iowa caucuses on the Democratic side were pretty much a two-person race between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. 
Uh, compare that in 2020 for me. Are people there in Iowa more engaged, excited that the field is so large? I think so. I mean, I think embarrassment of riches is a term that you hear in the crowds a lot. People are really enthused by not only the size of the field, but the diversity of candidates. I mean, we have um, many women in the field. We have many diverse uh, black and brown faces in the field. And uh, the Democratic base here is really excited about that, I think. Um, And whereas last time it felt very much like uh, you had a, a front runner and an alternative, this time they sort of feel like they are going to be able to pick the candidate they want, the one that resonates most with them. So I think it's it's just a totally different process this time. Seth, how does John Hickenlooper show that he's better presidential material than, say, another governor like Jay Inslee of Washington, uh, you know, let alone a senator like Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders? Well, I think what Hickenlooper kind of brings to the table, uh, main thing is being a governor, that uh, the, the the field, particularly the front runners in the field, uh, it's very Congress heavy right now. Mm. Um, so having some gubernatorial experience, um, particularly being a two term, pretty successful governor uh, who left office with very high approval ratings um, and also can point to uh, two successive victories in a purple state in years that were otherwise not very good for Democrats. Um, the fact that he can do that suggests that he may have some keys for for unlocking the nation as a whole that uh, that other candidates might not. I mean, being a governor means he has executive experience and he can claim the I'm not part of Washington thing. But, you know, foreign policy and military experiences are inherent weaknesses, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a governor is probably the job that is most similar to being president. But right, there's there's not a whole lot of foreign policy experience there. It, it's a lot more of uh, negotiating with a legislature and trying to pass an agenda and, uh, you know, simply doing uh, those other ceremonial aspects that make it sort of presidential-like. Well, we can say this. John Hickenlooper has been earning a lot of ink because uh, this week a number of publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and Denver Post ran opinion pieces weighing in on the viability of his candidacy. Um, Here's a snippet of what ran in WAPO, read here by a CPR staffer. Hickenlooper talked about the importance of going out and listening to people, about how when he was mayor of Denver and ran for governor, he connected with voters all over the state whose concerns weren't partisan, which is surely true. But unfortunately, it shows that while being out in the real America can help you understand how policy decisions affect people's lives, it can also obscure the real challenges of federal policymaking the next president will face. The writer goes on to say essentially that Hickenlooper isn't prepared for the kind of Republican Party he'll encounter in D.C. Max Potter, is is that a valid criticism that he just doesn't understand how Washington works and how vicious it can be? Well, I want to jump onto something Seth said here about what distinguishes John from the field that I think pours into your question. Sure. Uh, If if we go back to 2014, um, uh, John's reelect. By that point, he had dealt with energy issues, implementation of ACA, guns, uh, legalized marijuana. The economy uh, was doing not so well. And he ended up uh, making – now, around the country, you have governors dealing with those issues in onesies and twosies. John dealt with all of those all at once and still won re-election in a state that's equally divided a third, a third, and a third. And didn't only get the state through it, but they went from 40th to 1st. To your point in question about Washington, 
Uh, I think much of it is predicated upon John getting together a team. And uh, he's been talking a lot lately about that exact point. Um, And I think what he does is he has this way of galvanizing just the right advisors that he needs at just the right time. Do you mean a team that knows Washington in a way that he does not? Correct. Uh Uh-huh. Um, Okay, here's the yang to the Washington Post's yin. Uh, This comes from a column in The Times posting that Hickenlooper's approach may be something that's needed in Washington. He jumped into the race on Monday as a long shot with limited name recognition, but he has a biography and a resume that warrant attention. He didn't enter politics until his early 50s, after a hugely successful career in beer, in brew pubs to be exact. And he talks persuasively about what a customer service business like that taught him about courting people rather than confronting them. Seth, what's your take? I mean, there's some ways this could work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, I mean, uh, I think uh, Hickenlooper gave an interview the other day where he talked about, uh, you know, how he might potentially uh, negotiate with Mitch McConnell and that he just sort of sit down with him and say, well, what is it you really want? Yeah. And maybe we can maybe we can work on that. And. I think we've had um, a lot of presidents recently, uh, Obama, uh, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, who ran for office saying, well, I can fix the partisanship problem. I can fix polarization um, simply by sitting down with the other side and negotiating with them like like a reasonable person. And it's re- partisanship really isn't driven by the personality of the individual. There, there's much deeper systemic causes of it mm. in, in, in Washington. And, and the idea that one person is going to be able to overcome it simply by – uh, sitting down and, and, and chatting with the opposition, I, I, I don't think is very realistic. Max? Yeah. One of John's uh, classic axioms is there's no margin in making enemies. And uh, I think last night what he clearly showed is he's up for a fight and Trump is certainly an adversary. Uh, I, would, I would say a contrarian perspective to that, which may be necessary for a Washington, D.C. successful administration is – you don't go looking for enemies, but sometimes you're presented with unavoidable adversaries and realities that you can't make nice with. And I would submit that we are as defined much by our enemies as we are by our friends. And sooner or later, you're going to alienate somebody to get something done. He's a doer and he's a dreamer, but I think along the way, there's going to be more enemies. There's going to be some more contentious, tricky circumstances for him. Kevin, the Iowa caucuses are really the start of the primary season and crucial to determining if a candidate will be able to press on. I'm wondering how Hickenlooper is registering there. I mean, especially compared to some of the other Democratic politicians who've come to Iowa. It's a really good question, and it's probably too early to tell, but I'll just give you a little anecdote um, from an event a couple of weeks ago in Ames, uh, home to the to Iowa State University, where several Democrats were there um, sort of giving their stump speeches to a local fundraiser for a local fundraising event. And Hickenlooper was on stage, as was uh, Julian Castro and Kamala Harris. And he uh, sort of had mixed reactions from the crowd. I had one person say, you know, she was very sort of overwhelmed and uh, surprised to find him more progressive than she ever, you know, considered. She thought he was more of a moderate and was really surprised and kind of willing to give him a second look. And then I talked to a college student from Iowa State, and he was sort of just dumbfounded, didn't even understand where Hickenlooper was coming from or why he was running for president. So the reactions so far, I think, are really mixed. Um, obviously, he hasn't had the crowds or 
the level of enthusiasm that some of the bigger name candidates have, mm-hmm. but it's very early in the season and he definitely still has time to sort of make his case, I think, across the state. A roundtable today on Colorado Matters as we assess John Hickenlooper's candidacy for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020. Let's hear one more editorial. This is from the Denver Post. We don't know if Hickenlooper can win a Democratic primary that has at least 14 other qualified candidates, many of whom would also be good picks for the White House. But we do know that we're glad he's trying and that America could do and has done historically far worse than electing a president like John Hickenlooper. Okay, we heard uh, just there Kevin saying that Hickenlooper is framing himself as a progressive. I'm not sure that's a term that people might have used when he was in office. Is this a pivot that we're seeing to appeal to Democrats in a primary, Max Potter? Well, I think I I don't know that I would call it a pivot. I think, you know, John has to thread, as I think all of the primary candidates have to, John has to thread a very tricky needle here. Um, he's definitely has the bona fides of a centrist and a collaborator and a pragmatist. He doesn't need to convince anyone of that. I think the question is, uh, for the genius pollsters out there that are, that are advising him is how much does he, how much progressive leg does he need to show to continue, (laughs) to continue to draw in that, that more, uh, more passionate democratic base, um, I think it was interesting that he is closely he, – he's, he's making a point of saying, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. W- we know that. Um, and I think some of the things that he threw out in his speech last night and he's going with health care, uh, guns and the environment. Climate change, expanding voter participation. Correct. And I, I think those are clearly um, efforts to, to remind the more progressive progressive elements of the Democratic Party – that, that he hears them and he's got some bona fides. What do you think, Seth Maskett, on whether this is a pivot here? So, I mean, he's just choosing to to emphasize different areas of, of his background and his expertise. I mean, in, in many ways, a lot of the keys to his popularity when he was mayor and when he was governor was that the business community was always comfortable with him. Um, and Or largely. And the fact that he was uh, had a lot of support among uh, the the oil and gas industry um, was was very key to his ongoing success. Now his his support for fracking and, and those sorts of things is is not necessarily where uh, democratic activists are nationally right now. That's that's an area that they're going to be or probably and many of them are I think somewhat uncomfortable. So he is emphasizing parts of his career where uh, he, he thinks they're going to be more comfortable with him to, to demonstrate some some progressive bona fides. Max Potter, I'm dying to know, when you were collaborating with John Hickenlooper on The Opposite of Woe, uh, which is his memoir, did, did you think at that point, oh, this is him putting a stake in the ground, he wants to run for president? We certainly all thought that in the newsroom. No. Like, that's what you do. You write a book first. No, I, I didn't think that. Okay. Uh, certainly the, the vice president possibility was in the air. But, you know, I was one of a handful of people that were encouraging him to run, frankly, in 2016. And I think not not being able to foresee where he is now, I think what the opposite of what pr- provides for him is proof points that everything Trump claims that he is and did and achieved and is obviously full of it because it's not accurate. John is that. John's sort of the bizarro version of Trump, but in the best possible sense. Okay. The opposite of woe, by the way, is giddy up. 
That's a so pl- I'm told. It's a play on words that explains why his pack is called Giddy Up. Speaking of pack, I really want to talk about a cold hard cash. Earlier this week, Hickenlooper's campaign said they'd raised a million dollars within the first 48 hours of his announcement, adding there are just four candidates who accomplished that. Uh, but I wonder, Kevin, um, is is that a significant amount of money to be participating in Iowa? What do you make of that figure? I mean, I think that it definitely was a significant uh, sort of got some people's attention. Um, fundraising is a little bit um, unique in Iowa. This is a place where you spend money. You don't really necessarily fundraise here, mm. but um, that definitely did get some, some attention here, I think, from Democrats. Uh, you know, I'd like to speak to that point of sort of this threading a needle that he's going to have to do between being a moderate and appealing to the progressives in the party. Um, when he was here in October of last year, he sort of posed the question to local Democrats of whether a moderate like himself, you know, can win in a state like Iowa. And it's pretty interesting to me to see he's already now kind of saying he's a progressive who gets things done, who achieves progressive ideals. So I think that that's going to be sort of an ongoing tension with his with his run here is kind of defining which lane or which part of the party he's trying to appeal to. Uh, Seth Hickenlooper has said he's not going to take corporate PAC money. Is that remarkable? Um, that seems to be where a lot of Democratic candidates are these days, okay. uh, n- re- just refusing corporate PACs or, and refusing many PACs. And that, that doesn't really prevent uh, candidates from raising a lot of other money. Um, there, there's quite a bit of money to be raised just from from individual donations, from super PACs and 527s. There, there, there are lots of ways to raise monies and, and, and be competitive. Max, I'll give you the last word very briefly here. In his speech Thursday night in Civic Center, Hickenlooper said, together we can turn this winter of division into a season of hope, his final words of the speech. Earlier in the speech, he says, Donald Trump is destroying our democracy. Uh, How do you think he at once blasts Donald Trump in the way that I suppose Democrats want him to and yet tries to to say we we need to get rid of this division? Uh, I don't find those inherently contradictory. In fact, I, I liked both of those lines along with a lot of others in that speech. And I think that was a moment where where John is stating a reality. We have somebody who inhabits the White House and is the president of the United States who is a divisive, toxic force. And we need change and we need to come together. And I do think that um, before we can talk about policy, before we can get past the platitudes, we have to have somebody who can bring us together as a nation so that we can have civil discourse. Max Potter, editor-at-large with Esquire magazine, previously senior advisor and speechwriter for John Hickenlooper and co-author of his memoir, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. We also heard from Kevin Hardy, political reporter for the Des Moines Register, who has followed former Governor Hickenlooper and now Democratic presidential candidate in Iowa. And Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. When the Denver teacher strike ended a couple of weeks ago, both sides gave huge credit to the mediator who helped them settle on a new contract. Here's District Superintendent Susanna Cordova. We had an amazing 
mediator, uh, somebody who I think just did phenomenal work helping us both listen to what people were saying and hear what we meant. So she's talking about Kayla Mack, and we figured if Mack could help resolve the impasse at DPS, she might have some insight into everyday disputes the rest of us get into. Kayla, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. The superintendent said something really interesting there, that you helped them hear what they meant. And I wonder how often what someone actually means gets lost in emotion, assumption, All the time. All the time. All of the time, which I think is exactly why they ask a mediator to come in so that we can help with the translation, help with the messaging, help them really hear each other. Help with the translation. Yep. Both sides are speaking English. What is there to translate? So I think too many times parties get focused on their ideal solution. This is my proposal. This is my position. And they work from there, right? This is my answer to the problem. Rather than focusing on their interest, right? What's behind your position? What's behind your proposal? What's your need, your belief, your fear, your desire? What's really driving you? It's your why, right? They need to focus on the why rather than just what they're putting forward in terms of their respective answers to whatever issues before them. It sounds like you're saying that people walk into negotiations like these with what they believe is the end result. Absolutely. Sort of as a fait accompli, as opposed to analyzing all of the realities and emotions that drove them to that position. Yes, that's exactly right. I have an idea of how I think this needs to play out, and that's the way I'm going to drive this. Our egos get associated with our proposal, right? And then rather than hearing each other out, people tend to hear what they listen for and see what they look for. And so we're going to look for that data that reinforces where we think this should go, what the end result should Mm. be, and ignore whether consciously or subconsciously that information's that's out there that might, in fact, challenge our own biases, our own perceptions right. and perspectives. Right. This reminds me of confirmation bias. So, Kayla, this idea that people often walk into negotiations uh, with a picture of, of how they should be finished and complete and settled as opposed to exploring the fundamentals behind that. What's an example uh, you've seen in real life? So I don't know if I could share an example I've seen in real life, but this is a very oversimplified example that I teach around the state of Colorado to different labor management groups. You and I, Ryan, are headed to a kitchen, the same kitchen, the same counter, the same fruit bowl. We both have the same idea in mind. You want an orange? I want an orange. We go to reach for the fruit bowl. What's the scenario? There's one orange. What are we going to do? Everybody gives me one of two, one of two outcomes. You're going to get the orange or I'm going to get the orange. That's one. One person takes the whole thing, or we're going to cut it down the middle and split it in half. Your positions, you get it. My positions, my get it. Those are the only two outcomes we're going to arrive upon if we only focus on those positions. If we chatted about our why, right? You want to make mimosas. You need the guts. I want to make a pie. For the pie crust, I need the zest. Now what's going to happen? You're taking the guts. I'm taking the zest. We both get more of what we came in for, right? We're not ingrained in our positions. We talk about what's important. We start to hear and understand each other. We can collaborate around more creative, durable solutions that we can all buy into, and we can actually focus around mutual gain, better outcomes, better relationships at the table. That's fascinating. I thought, well, the only way to settle this is one person gets the orange or you split it. But as you explore the motivations behind it, a clearer picture emerges and there's enough orange, it turns out, to go around. Yes. Uh, you, you say that's um, incredibly oversimplified. Sure. And yet, how often 
when you are mediating, does that manifest in real life? That it, it's actually that there's way more nuance than either side realizes. Almost all the time. Look, you can ask any parties. They come in with an original proposal to settle the disagreement, right? The other party does the same. Ask parties how many times one of their initial proposals is where they land. Next to never. There's a negotiation piece that takes place where those conversations become imperative. But you're asking people to, in a way, examine their own motivations, which they may not have done before. True. I think in any dispute, you've got to do a few things. Number one, you've got to prepare. Be prepared. Know your position and know your why, but anticipate what the other party's going to come in for. Right. But and wait, when I prepare for an argument, what sure. I tend to do in my head is imagine what the other party is going to say or do. And I do. I like build up my defenses. Sure what do you, you mean do. plan? What I mean by plan is prepare. Again, know your positions, know your needs, know the difference between what you need and what you want and try to anticipate the same f- for them. Right. You want to be prepared to, so that you can speak to any point that they raise. Okay. However, be cautious, because like you said, we build ourselves up. Right. How many times have you practiced that speech in the mirror? Because you just know exactly <laughs> what they're going to say. You have to keep an open mind and and truly listen. And the biggest key, listen to understand rather than to respond, which is too many, too many times the case. Okay, that seems like really actionable advice. Listen to understand as opposed to listen to respond. Correct. I tell parties at the table, almost all of my clients, one of the biggest concessions that you can make at the table, and it costs you absolutely nothing, is to listen. Show the person that you value the speaker and their message enough to listen. And not to listen to respond. In other words, it's again, it's not taking in information just so that you can support your own argument further. Do you think that that speaks to some extent to our broken politics? If we can like go beyond the kitchen table to the halls of Congress? I think that these types of um, ideas and concepts permeate all people dynamics, whether it's politics, whether it's the kitchen table or whether it's the bargaining table. Does being a mediator make you better at interpersonal relationships or are you just like as flawed at this as all of us? (laughs) That's a great question. You'd like to think it does. I can tell you that since I've been mediating, it sure has given me a different perspective and the way I operate in my private life. Do I have it mastered? No, because each of us are human and we can be triggered right, into an emotional response. But I'm much more cognizant of it, and I try to practice what I preach. What's the hardest part for you? Like, what do you still struggle with personally? What do I still struggle with? Um, I think that I still struggle with being able to focus on other people's ideas and using those to challenge my own biases and perceptions, right? Keeping evolving, keeping an open mind. Sure. Can you think of an instance you'd share with us? I don't want to get too personal. I think that my husband would probably have a number of instances that he would share with you. But I think just in day-to-day conversations about how we operate our household and run our family. We have different ideas and we have to work together. Okay. There's a specific reason that we're not talking in great detail about your work in the DPS strike. And that's because you have something of a a professional commitment not to revealing too much detail. But I am curious before we go how you walk into a dispute that is at least 15 months old and really whose roots are years or decades old and and get any buy-in to what you're saying. 
I imagine that there are eye rolls in who are you? Absolutely. I think the key is to get in there, let them know that you're a third party neutral. You truly are neutral. You're not going to advocate for either party, either anyone's proposal or position. Number two, you're strictly confidential. Anything that they share with you, you're going to you know, hold in your pocket because you've got to earn their trust. Number three, be sincere. If I'm disingenuous in there, they're going to pick up on that. And I think number four is let them know that you're there to work. You're going to roll up your sleeves. You're going to put in the time. You're going to be there with them alongside them for as long as it takes to get it done. Even if it's three in the morning. That's absolutely correct. And it was. It was six in the morning. Okay. Kayla Mack, thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Kayla Mack is a commissioner with the Federal Mediation and Consent service. She helped negotiate an end to the Denver Public Schools teachers' strike. Denver became a one-newspaper town 10 years ago now when the Rocky Mountain News folded. It was painful, but a lot of ingenuity followed. Think, more recently, the Colorado Sun and the growth here at CPR News, which we announced this week is acquiring Denverite. And yet across the country, journalists still aren't being radical enough when it comes to local coverage. That's according to the final editor of the Rocky Mountain News, John Temple. He'll be in Denver this weekend for a reunion of his former staff. Temple just wrote a piece in The Atlantic titled, My Newspaper Died Ten Years Ago. I'm Worried the Worst is Yet to Come. And John Temple, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Do you remember that day when the corporate folks came to announce that the Rocky was closing? Yes, it was a very traumatic day. It's terrible to think that I think the worst is yet to come because I can tell you that that was a very unhappy moment to know that the ripple effect of a closing of a newspaper, it isn't just the people in the room. It's the readers. It's the families of the people in the room. It's the parents and the children. It has a tremendous ripple effect. What are the civic effects, if you will, of a newspaper closing? Because this has been studied. Um, Let's just talk about the stakes here just briefly. What you see is less oversight, less accountability reporting, less people watching what government in particular, but also the powerful institutions and forces in a community, what they're doing. And there's a loss of understanding of the community for the people within the community. They lose a sense of the collective self and the common good, I think. And we know that there's some studies that show that the cost of bond issues might go up because of the lack of accountability reporting and voting might go down. And those are all serious consequences. The Rocky closed in 2009 at the height of the Great Recession. You blame its failure partly on the fact that it was owned by a national corporation, while the Denver Post, which of course persisted, had local ownership. I guess at that point, willing to weather the financial storm for a while. We actually thought when the Rocky closed that the Post would be a thriving viable publication for a long time. But today, that's not a newspaper that's, in my view, committed to the public service of the community the way the newspapers were previously. And while the people in the newsroom, I know, and the people at the newspaper are working very hard and doing their best, there's a limit what any small group of individuals can do. You're talking about its hedge fund owner, which has Some people surely see it as bled the paper dry. 
my view is that's what they've done, that their business strategy is in effect to ride the paper down to extinction and extract all the revenue they can from it. And they're able to do it because they got it at a very good price. And there is a loyal readership that's willing to pay a very high circulation rate. And there are still advertisers who want to use a newspaper. So uh, there's money there if you're willing to be ruthless. It's an extraction strategy. It's not a strategy to serve the community. In this Atlantic article, you float several possible solutions to ensure there's strong local journalism, ranging from public donations and membership to taxpayer support. You cite, as an example, the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District in Metro Denver. People pay taxes and the zoo and the ballet get funded. Are you making journalism an instrument of government if you do that? Well, it's a great question. And We don't know the answer, and I know purists would say we are, but I would go back in history and say newspapers initially got special postage rates. Government agencies were required to run legal advertising, low cost to produce, high return. So in both cases, it was a form of government subsidy. I don't necessarily see the problem, and I think there are solutions, structural solutions that could insulate any news organization from pressures. So I think it's at least worth considering because I think what you're really talking about is that there's a public good in journalism that doesn't have commercial value, that no one is going to pay for investigative reporting of a certain level. I'll give you an example. When I was at the Rocky Mountain News, We produced a special report called Final Salute, and it won the Pulitzer for feature writing and for feature photography. It was an extraordinary effort, and we printed like 24-page sections, full color, special website. There's no question that that effort cost us hundreds of thousands. I think it cost about a million dollars probably to do the whole thing. So you tell me, is any advertiser going to pay a million dollars to publish a section about a casualty assistance calls officer and the whole approach of the Marines to the loss of a a fallen Marine? I think the answer is no. But is there value? It's been recognized with two Pulitzers. I think the society and the military community itself would say there's tremendous value. So we have to find some way to make sure that that kind of work and that kind of understanding of the community continues. Does this mean that the for-profit news model is gone in your mind? I don't think so. I think nationally, clearly, there's room for for for-profit. I mean, we know that. There just clearly is. And I think on the local level, there is for certain types of publications, business publications. Business people read journalism to make money from it. They want to make better deals, make better decisions, and they're willing to pay. They even can write off the expense. And reality is, is the Denver Broncos could be covered by for-profit publications like ESPN or The Athletic. But I think it's very unlikely to think that public education in Colorado is going to be covered by a for-profit or the environment or transportation. So I think there's a lot of areas that are central and key to a community that there's not a for-profit model to make those work. I hear the investigative reporters at the TV stations recoiling in horror at this assessment. 
<laughs> but people probably have recoiled in horror at a lot of what I've said over the years. What can I say? I think the reality is, is television plays such a complicated role that it's quite conceivable that some local television news can survive because it's surrounded by other things like entertainment. TV is also excellent at doing live coverage, and the web is a very live medium, and TV in some ways is better equipped to make that transition. But my only caveat to that is I ride BART, which is our metro subway system, and I ride the bus to go to work and come home every night, and I look at what people are doing, and they are not watching television. They are not reading a newspaper. They have headphones on. They're listening to podcasts. They may be watching YouTube. They may be playing games. So I don't think they're going to be watching programmed television. We're moving to a completely on-demand media environment where the consumer is going to consume news when he or she wants to, not when the TV station says we'll be on at five. We don't live like that anymore. And the younger generation has no interest in it. I'd like to wind down uh, where we began with the Rockies' closure 10 years ago, the Rocky Mountain News. You're coming to see some of your former colleagues. In general, how are they doing? Do, Do they remain employed, employed in journalism? What's your sense of where they landed? In general, people are doing really well. And what they learned, many learned, was that Journalism was great training. The skills they had made them highly valuable in new organizations. There's no question that the loss of the Rocky has been devastating for others. We've lost people. Some have, of course, died. Others have suffered either financially or emotionally or mentally. It's just a very difficult loss. It's hard to describe how meaningful the Rocky was to the people who worked there. But I think it says something that we have like, you know, we're nearly at 250 RSVPs for our reunion. And the newsroom on the last day was at around 200. People from the history of the paper are wanting to get together to re-experience some of the bond that we felt there That's actually uh, encouraging to me because it's a reminder that we did create something that was great for its time. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate your interest in this. John Temple is former editor of the Rocky Mountain News, which closed 10 years ago. He now directs the investigative reporting program at the University of California, Berkeley. Temple will be in Denver this weekend for a reunion of his former Rocky staff. And we'll be right back live from the Rockies Spring Training. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan, and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Colorado Rockies are in Scottsdale, Arizona this month for spring training, and CPR's Vic Vela is with them and talking with their all-star. Hi, Vic. Hey there, Ryan. I checked the forecast. You have a high there today of 65, so my first question is if you'll ever be coming back. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, the jury's still out on that. Um, I, I, I hear there's negotiations uh, of me being traded to Arizona, actually. So, uh, and, and just so you know, I'm actually wearing, I'm literally wearing a shirt that has flamingos on it as I speak to you. So festive. Okay, the Rockies have made it to the playoffs the last couple of seasons and then fizzled out. What, yeah. is, what is the buzz from players heading into this new season? You know, what I get from players, Ryan, is everyone's really upbeat. They know the last couple of years they've, they've had some really good years, but they haven't gotten as far uh, as they would have hoped. You know, they got swept by the Brewers uh, in the postseason last year. Uh, so they're just in this zone where they've just been so close and they have established themselves as one of the best teams in baseball. But uh, so now you can tell there's a focus on all the players that they want to get over that next hump. And uh, so they're looking to build on their success and achieve even bigger and better things this year. And obviously, Ryan, Nolan Arenado has been a huge part of the team's success in recent years. And he's one of the best all-around players in the game. And Rockies fans were able to breathe a huge sigh of relief recently when he signed a new contract that could keep him in Colorado for a very long time. Uh, you know, Nolan has spent the past five years, his entire major league career with the Rockies. And with this eight-year deal, he's finally committed to the city. I spoke with him yesterday, and he told me that he calls Denver his home away from home. I know, I'm obviously, I claim California, Southern California, because that's where I was born. But I definitely take ownership a little bit in Colorado also, because, you know, I love it. I've been there for so long. I spend most of my time, most of my life, most of my months with in Colorado because of baseball season. So, you know, yeah, I, I really do. I really love it. I enjoy it there. Um, very comfortable. So, yeah, it, it felt good knowing that, you know, there's an opportunity to be here for the rest of my career. It's got to feel good just being done with all this money stuff and you could just play, right? Um, yeah. Um, I hate talking about money and I hate talking about myself. So I'm very happy that all that stuff's over with. Um, no more media questions about it or anything. So it's been really nice. When you get up to that plate and you get that kind of ovation, I can't imagine what kind of ovation you're going to get opening day at Coors Field. Like, what does that feel like as someone who's not a baseball player who gets up there? What does that feel like when you play at Coors Field every day? Um, it feels good, you know. Obviously, I, I, you know, I've thought about the ovation. I know it's going to be pretty wild and stuff, and I, I can't wait for that. But, you know, I um, honestly, I, I, you know, every every year I've, I've been fortunate to go to opening, you know, have opening day, and you know, I've been fortunate to get gold gloves and do it in front of them and stuff, and. It's been amazing, but you know my my mind is so caught up in the game that you know sometimes you don't realize the ovation and the clapping that's going on. This this year, I'm going to try to really enjoy it, enjoy hearing the fans and stuff like that this opening day. One thing that always struck me about you, Nolan, is how you practice. Uh, when I was walking into the facility this morning, you were the first one running out there. Talk about how you go into spring training and what kind of mentality you have because it's not the regular season, but you need to get in shape. Yeah, yeah, I just you're just trying to get ready. You know, I think um, a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I feel like the harder I go now. Um, when I get into the season, it'll feel a little bit easier because, you know, you can't put all this work during the season. You're just going to be too tired for games. So, you know, I'm just kind of draining myself now and kind of just really over working hard to, to really feel, you know, that grind and get sore and kind of like get used to it quicker. So when the season starts, you know, these games that it won't feel as bad. 
You guys obviously have a great uh, group of guys coming back. Uh, you're trying to get to the postseason for the third year in a row. What's it going to take this time to get over that hump, uh, to get to that next level in the postseason? I think it's just more consistency. You know, last year we weren't as consistent as we have been in the past and offensively. And uh, we just got to be more consistent. Um, you know, our pitchers need to continue to do what they do. Um, they can still get better. You know, I feel like we were always down in the first. You know what I mean? They always kept us in games, and they've always pitched really well. But, you know, hopefully, you know that shut, those shutdown innings are huge for us. And then as an offense, we have to come alive and be better later and later in games. I feel like we weren't very good later in games. So hopefully we can step that up, and um, I think good things will happen. You have the potential of being one of the greatest Rockies of all time, one of the greatest Denver sports players of all time. That's got to make you feel something, right? Yeah, I know. That, that feels great hearing that. I mean, there's obviously I got a long road to go to that, and, you know, those are those are great things, but you know, those are those are like kind of the back of my mind. You know, I got a lot of things in the front of my mind that I'm more worried about, but it is cool to think about that and have an opportunity for that to happen. But there's still a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. How do you stay balanced? How do you not get like a big head when you because you get so much attention? How do you stay grounded? Yeah, I think it's very easy. You know, I think baseball is such a humbling game that it's very there's no there's nowhere else else to go other than stay grounded. You know, you, there's there's so many ups and downs in baseball that I just don't think there's you have a lot of room to think you're all that, or there's no time for that. You know, there's so many things you can get better at in this game that, and it's constantly telling you what you can get better at. So, I think it's very easy for me, and you know, I know what I need to do to get things done. Nolan, thanks a lot, man. No problem. Thank you. So that's Nolan Arenado. He's the first third baseman in MLB history to win four Gold Gloves in his first four seasons. Ryan. You know, the talk of his contract made me look this up. That eight-year contract, according to Purple Row, worth $260 million. My goodness. Uh, Vic, yeah. is, is there anything you're learning about this Rockies team that, that might surprise fans and even surprise you? I, I think you know everything about the Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I've had a lot of fun watching Bud Black, Ryan. Uh, he's the Rockies manager, and he has, this, he has a really good way of doing some team-building exercises with his team. It's something that he learned from uh, Mike Sosha, the longtime Angels manager who uh, Bud Black coached under. Um, you know, he, he has guys playing basketball as sort of a little comp- side competition, and he has these young players come in and introduce themselves in very unique ways. Like he had a Cuban player come in a, a while back, and uh, he had his mom come in and cook Cuban food for the team. Mm. And just recently he had some rookies uh, do some uh, a report, if you will, on NBA players who are international players in the league. Uh, it, and he, they had to present it in front of the team. It's just a way that he, he keeps things light. It's a long spring training, but it helps to break up the monotony a little bit. It was so nice when Nolan talked about how humbling baseball can be. I, I don't imagine that's true for every player, that they are humbled by the game. You know, it's a tough game. I mean, think about it this way, Ryan. It's, it's, it's a sport where a 300 batting average is considered to be really good. You're in a sport where you do something three out of ten times, and it's considered excellent. <laughs> So being a baseball player is a really tough job. And I think you'd be surprised that a lot of players, even though they, they drive the fancy cars and even though they may go on, on, uh, on the radio or on, on national television uh, and make a lot of money, they still in some ways stay really humble. I've been following your trip on Twitter where you have a poll about whether baseball games are too long. We have about 30 seconds. Why are you asking about that? 
Uh, Major League Baseball has been uh, trying to figure out ways to kind of help uh, pick up the pace in games. Uh, last year, the average game lasted about three hours and five minutes. So uh, this spring training, they put in a pitch clock as a way to experiment with those kinds of things. So I'm just curious to hear what fans have to say about that. All right. He's at VicVela1 on Twitter. Vic, thanks for being with us. All right, Ryan. Take care, guys. CPR's Vic Vela is speaking to us from Rocky's Spring Training in Scottsdale, Arizona, and wearing, I think, a flamingo shirt, he said. We have daily updates on his trip in our newsletter, The Lookout. And again, you can follow him on Twitter at VicVela1. I'm at CPR Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.